Anyway, good morning, church family. It's good to, it's good to see you. Did you know that gravity is not the same everywhere on this planet? I'm just curious. Show of hands. Who knew that? Okay. So two people are telling the truth and a bunch of liars else here in the room. No, I'm just kidding. I did not know that. I didn't know that. That might be a shocker to you. Probably not. Uh, but I, I didn't know that. All right. Scientists talk about these gravity anomalies at, at, at large and tall mountains and in the, and in the um, deep ocean trenches. Uh, gravity works differently. But this is not a science lesson on gravity. The main point is that there are a lot of things about this world that we live in uh, and about God that we don't know. And there are a lot of things that, that, that scientists are seeking to explore, which is wonderful. We'll spend our, all of our lives seeking to understand this world, this universe, surely the human heart, better and better um, as we go. But there are some things, friends, that we're just never going to understand because God is never ending. And this world is far greater than we will ever be able to grasp. So there's a whole lot, I don't know a whole lot that we don't know, and that we should be okay not knowing. That's not saying uh, the pursuit of knowledge of these things is, is bad. It's good. It's just, it's just uh, that we want to go about it in a, way that, in a way that's humble, right? Knowledge can be a wonderful gift. Knowledge can also be, or the pursuit of knowledge can also be sinful pride, even knowledge that doesn't seem that, that grandiose. When Paul is teaching the church in Corinthians about eating meat sacrificed to idols, and that's just the whole thing. We're not going to get, in get into all that right now. But in the context of, of that conversation, he's instructed believers, and he's, he's telling them that, that you, know, you know what decisions you can make on that. There's freedom of choice in how you live in this way, but knowledge, this knowledge about this particular Christian freedom. This knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so while there's a lot in this world around us uh, and the Lord that we'll never know, there is so much that we can know. There is so much that we can know. There is something about our sinful human nature, though. If you've got uh, five, five uh, presents lined up, lined up here on the stage, and everybody opens four of them, um, we all leave wanting to know, almost craving, to overstate it a little bit, I realize, but not, maybe not. What's in the fifth box? I just want to know. Never mind what's in the wonderful other four boxes that we do know. God has given us so much for us to know about who he is and about this world and about the human heart in the word of God. And yet sometimes, sometimes we get laser focused on the parts that either we just are not uh, maturing enough or grown enough in our faith to understand because it just takes time. You don't learn everything in one fell swoop Uh, or or some things that are just a mystery. And uh, we set our sights on that. And when we do that, we, we can walk away from the very plain and clear things that God has said. This is what I want you to know about me. This is what I want you to know about how to do church together, about how to live together in this world. And we can set that aside. All of the easy things that God, not easy, but easier to understand things that God has given us. And say, no, I want to go after this one little thing over here. And, and that's where we are tempted 
to pride. Knowledge is an important concept in this little book of 1 John, this little pastoral letter. It was written by the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the same John who wrote 2 and 3 John right after this little book. And uh, John, uh, we call him sometimes the revelator, right? Who wrote uh, Revelation. Uh, But the word knowledge in this uh, section of scripture, really from here to the end, uh, the word knowledge or to know or we know um, or we have known is many times in this section. And we see it uh, right square in the middle of the passage that we're looking at today in verse 14. It helps us see that that's the main part of what he wants us to understand, sort of the main point of this text. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's kind of the centerpiece of our message today uh, as we're looking at that. And so remember last week we saw a contrast between those who practice righteousness and those who practice unrighteousness. Those who practice righteousness are God's children. Uh, That is those who practice holy living, who continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, who are striving to put to death the flesh and be made alive in the spirit, uh, uh, or, or demonstrate that they have been made alive in the spirit by practicing holiness, which is to be set apart um, and to order our lives according to the ways of the Lord. Today, we see the second contrast between love and hate. And we kind of, I kind of dipped my toe into it a little bit last week, but we'll, we'll get in there a little bit more uh, as we see even the relationship between hate and murder as we make our way through this text, some surprising things here for us that catch us off guard. And, and we, we wonder, is this just hyperbole? Is he just exaggerating for the sake of making a point? Um, well, yes or no, we'll see. Uh, read with me, if you will, 1 John 3, 1 John toward the end of your Bible there, right before Revelation, uh, 1 John 3, and we'll look at verses 10 through 18 today. John says, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is from God, nor is the one, and this is really our transition verse, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Well, because his deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. In saying that it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the the devil, and then providing these two contrasts, John is seeking to exhort or to motivate believers toward Christ-like love through action, right? Our main idea for this morning, we must examine our lives to see if and how we are sacrificially loving our church family as an expression of God's love for his 
people. The, 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 the main issue at hand here in verses 11 through 24, which we'll take over the course of two weeks, is uh, how can we know that we are Christians? I mean, he started dealing with that uh, in our previous text as well, but how, how can we know that we are Christians? Well, the first is that we'll consider today is that we're to, to demonstrate Christ-like love for believers. We're to demonstrate Christ-like love to believers. And the second, which we'll look at next Sunday, Lord willing, is that we possess God-given, spirit-abiding confidence. He's writing that we might have confidence in our assurance of our salvation, that God ensures for those who turn from themselves and trust in Him. Not confidence like we, we cross our fingers and we hope that our team wins the game. That's not confidence. That's an earthly-minded hoping, wishing, you might say. He wants to have hope, a confident expectation of a reality that is a sure thing. So our first point is that we need to love one another and avoid or avoiding the example of Cain. It's really interesting how he, he lays out these truths, that this is the message that they've heard from the beginning, right? He echoes Jesus's words in the upper room to his disciples when Jesus was teaching the disciples just prior to, uh, or not long before, Jesus's, Jesus's death toward the end of his earthly ministry. He's echoing Jesus's words. Jesus in John 13, not 1 John, because there aren't 13 chapters here, but in John 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as, that's what makes that whole thing hard right there, just as in the same way or modeled after you have seen me love you, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another, right? It does away with anything. If any of you have ever said like, oh, that's good enough. Maybe you're painting something and you get to a certain point, you're like, you're just kind of tired and you've got a cramp in your thumb and whatever. And you, if you're like me, you just hate painting anyway. So you're like, yeah, there's color on the wall. Yeah, we're going to call it good, right? Nope. Just as I have loved you. That just raises the bar. A little later in Jesus's high priestly prayer, he prays, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And a few verses later, he says, these things I command you that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before he hated you. I said the, I had the wrong chapter in my mind when I said in Jesus's high priestly prayer. It sounds very much like he's talking to the disciples there, which he is. So I had that wrong. It was not during his high priestly prayer. Uh, this is the same message that they'd heard from the beginning, meaning from the beginning of when they became Christians, right? When the gospel was preached to them, they heard the gospel of salvation and that it is God's intention for us to love in the same way that Christ has loved us. So he's not, he's, John is not bringing something new to the disciples here. This is the message you have heard from the beginning is what he starts out with in verse 11 there, that we should love one another. This is a call that we should love. It's a call to a continuous display of love. It's ongoing. And often what that means is opportunities to sacrificially love come at the, often the most inconvenient times. Loving sacrificially doesn't mean only in ways that are convenient, only in ways that where you're able to order your schedule around it, only in ways where it seems easy. I'm getting ahead of myself. I know I can tell, but it applies to every Christian relationship, right? He's talking to brothers and sisters, Christian. That's our Christian designation, right? If you're a, if you're a parent and you have a son or a daughter, that's a follower of Jesus. 
they're your brother or sister in Christ and vice versa. Sometimes when we talk about marriage or family or different kinds of relationships, um, we look for those designations. The most important designation is brother and sister. Everything that applies, one Christian to another, applies to husbands and wives, applies to siblings, applies to deacons, elders, church family working together, brothers and sisters. Everything applies in those relationships, right? And so, yes, the message of love applies to loving the world in general. But the context here, the context here, John is talking specifically about Christian love, right? He's not not saying we're walking away from loving the world. No, he's just keying in on Christian love here. And so that's important for us to understand. What does love look like in the community of faith, right? So he gives this positive exhortation, then he follows it with a negative example, right? Uh, we, we all want to remember, be remembered for something, isn't it? Don't, I mean, isn't that true? If you think about your life, like, what do you want to be remembered for? What do you want your legacy to be, right? And we start thinking of things. It's not Cain, right? You don't want to be the negative example. I mean, we're not going to have another Bible, but if, if you lived back then, you don't want to be like the guy that gets called out for like, hey, do this and follow Jesus. Don't be like that guy. Oh man, I made it in the book like that. Like nobody wants that, right? But that's Cain, right? Cain murders his brother. He did, he did the wrong thing. He was of the evil one, the devil. You're going to hear me use that phrase several times today. And I'll tell you why. Well, number one, because God gave it to us right here in the Bible and it's part of our text. But secondly, we don't like to think of evil. We like to think of good and not so good, right? We like to think of like holy and really nice people who aren't perfect, right? Just think about it. If you talk to somebody about, I'm, I'm kind of riffing here, so we'll see how this analogy comes together. But if you're talking to somebody about uh, something in life and you're maybe challenging them on something, you're having a conversation about something, they're sharing something that they did in your life that wasn't good, it is often followed with something like, uh, with something like this. Well, I mean, I know I haven't been the perfect husband. Nobody wants to say, you know what? I treated my wife evilly yesterday. Like, when's the last time you said that? Oh, I acted evilly. I acted in evil. Oh, that was wicked. Unless you're from the Northeast, like Boston, Boston area, and then you say, that's wicked. I have friends that live up there. They say wicked, like, nonstop. Those terms are hard to hear. You don't think of your neighbor or your family member as wicked or evil or of the evil one? That's hard. I will tell you, the more we soften the edge, and I'm not, walk, I'm not suggesting you walk around and introduce yourself to your neighbor or your coworker and say, hello, you're of the evil one and I am righteous, right? I mean, we're not looking for that. Obviously, I'm just trying to make the point. I know you know that, but we don't think of our family member as of the evil one if they don't know the Lord. And I will tell you, the more we soften the edges, the less we will be impassioned to pray for them and to share the love of the Lord Jesus with them. If we try to, if we try to smooth everything off, our passion for their soul almost dissipates. And so we need to use the Bible's words to talk about um, how we know one another, how we identify ourselves and, and other people.
both Cain and Abel, they bring an offering to the Lord and the Lord accepts Abel's offering. You may remember this, but not Cain's. And, and we can't get into the ditches on this right now, but that, that main idea, that main point that God accepted uh, Abel's offering, but not Cain's, Cain was so enraged, jealousy, many other things, entitlement, laziness, an expectation that God should just be happy that it came at all. You ever feel like that? I'm getting off time. There's like 15 sermons in here that I have to try not to preach today. <laughs> God should just be happy that I showed up at church. Oh, really? Cain was angry at God. He made a moral judgment that God made the wrong moral judgment. God who is always righteous, always right in everything he does to the perfection, to the degree of perfection. God is perfect. He never makes any wrong judgments. Circumstances in my own life that I'm not always real happy about. And I say, Lord, why is that? I start to have these questions, start to have my own little pity party, and then I remember, okay, God is working in this, and I don't like this. It's probably why God has ordered it this way. Because my heart needs to be tuned, like the old hymn, tuned to sing His grace. Come thou fount, fountain of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing Thy grace. My heart is constantly being tuned. It goes out of tune so easily. So easily. So He judged God as evil, is what really happened there. He judged God as evil because he himself was evil. Abel's righteousness. Now, here's where, here's where we're going to see this happen in our life. Abel's righteousness shined as a spotlight on Cain's evil, right? We don't see in this picture Abel walking around and be like, ha ha, Abel, uh, God took my offering and he didn't take yours. No, just Abel presented his offering and the Lord accepted it and he rejected Cain's offering. We don't see that Abel sinned in that anywhere, right? But what happens when you live in a way that's righteous Others who live uh, in the path of evil are convicted. They're convicted for it. Right? You ever had anybody, maybe they say like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I cussed around you or something like that, right? And you just try to remind them, well, I'm not the one that you're offending. And so just kind of in a way, kind of use some winsome wittiness in that and, uh, and let them know, not that it's okay, but you're not the one who stands as judge over them, right? There are some fun ways that you can kind of do that relationally with people. They know well, you don't use that language or you don't do these things, right? We're not talking about self-righteousness. We're talking about the pursuit of righteousness. When we live in a way that's righteous, others are convicted because of their own evil ways, because of their own evil deeds. We're not standing over them saying, you're evil. God, who has revealed himself, his eternal and divine nature through creation, and more specifically, specially in his word, convicts people's hearts when they do evil deeds. And when people are living in ways that are striving to honor the Lord, however imperfectly that may be, they're convicted. So we need to identify ways to creatively take that from, oh, I'm sorry I did that, or oh, I'm sorry I said that around you too. Well, how do we take them to the Lord through that conversation? Right? Let's get creative and thinking through that a little bit.
But that's not even the main point for today. Like I said, uh, you know, Cain gives evidence that he was of his spiritual father, Satan, right? One commentator says Cain drew inspiration from the evil one who is himself the, the archetypal murderer, right? The example of what it means to hate to the degree that leads to murder. That is our enemy, the devil. And why did he murder him? John asked this rhetorical question. It's like a question that doesn't need to be asked, right? A rhetorical, you say like, well, it goes without saying, and then you go ahead and say it anyway. So it really doesn't go without saying. That's what he's doing here, right? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So if you ever wondered, why did Cain murder evil? Because Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's deeds were righteous. You know the expression, the apple doesn't fall far from, far, fall far from the tree? Well, this was that case. And it's important to understand that we don't have nice people and not as nice people that I like or don't like in this world or even in the church. We have righteous people and unrighteous people. Now, if you're humble right now, you're thinking something like, well, I'm not really that righteous. Oh, no, your perspective of righteousness is wrong already. You're righteous because Jesus makes you righteous, not because you're righteous. So you can kind of shelve the, the, uh, I feel like I better stop this sentence while I'm behind. Shelve the wrong perspective of thinking, oh, don't call me righteous. I'm not righteous. Finish the sentence and say, no, I'm not righteous, but God is. And so he makes me righteous and I stand robed in righteousness before God which means that I want to live humbly and lovingly toward others. But to his point, don't be surprised when other, others want to take you down for it. When they're convicted because you're living in ways that please the Lord, you will be hated. When you go to the polls and you vote according to your biblical conscience, which is what every believer ought to do, you will be hated. When you make decisions that go against the norm in society, because humbly in a pursuit of righteousness, you're striving to honor the Lord, you will be hated. You will be maligned. You will be mocked. Ask the Holy Spirit to develop on you thick skin so that you can learn to take it. I saw one of these, a meme that just kind of came across one of my social feeds a few weeks ago, and it was just uh, talking about something and um, just saying, well, if you do that, then they're going to be, they're just going to be too different. I was like, well, that's the point. We're going to make some decisions so that our kids are different. We're going to make some decisions so that our family is different. We're going to make some decisions so that our pocketbook looks different. We, uh, we're going to make different decisions as people because we're called to be different people. One of the ways that we're called to be different is by loving one another. Right? The, the negative example is, is don't be like Cain because his own deeds were evil he murdered his brother. Don't be surprised, brothers. You remember, John has been calling us children and my little children throughout this passage. Here he changes that to call us brothers. Don't, don't, don't be surprised, brothers. 
This would be a form of that word that could mean brothers or sisters. He's talking to the Christian community. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. When the world is enraged that you fight their sociological interpretations, when the world is enraged that you fight for life at every stage, when the world hates you because you won't fall in line, don't be shocked that they want to mock you. Don't be shocked that they pressure you, that you're making other people feel uncomfortable, that you're making other people feel guilty or condemned. How you go about it matters greatly, but do not be surprised when you in love make convictional decisions for your family, for your church, and strive to fight for things according to righteousness in the world, knowing that you're walking into a lion's den because they will hate you. They murdered your savior. Why would it be any different? They murdered the apostles. Why would it be any different? Why do we think? When, when Christians are being murdered actively as we speak around the world right now, why would we be shocked? Don't expect kind, special treatment for striving to live godly lives. John says, don't be surprised. And then verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And so he insists that the believer can come to a place of genuine assurance. He's not saying we hope. He's not saying, well, we twiddle our thumbs. We, we, we sort of uh, tap our foot, hope to, trying to do the best and hoping that we're doing well enough to make it or hoping, hoping that we're maintaining well enough to the faith. We know. How do you know? Look at your life. Don't sentimentalize your life. Sentimentality helps no one when it comes to Christian assurance. Good intentions help no one. When it comes to loving sacrificially, look at your life. Every aspect of your life. If I start picking one or two things as examples now, you think I'm gonna, you're going to think I'm just referring to that one area. Look at the whole of your life, your relationships, your pocketbook, your schedule, your priorities, what you have in a monetary sense, what you have in a materialistic sense. Look at all of it. And say, in what ways am I stewarding what God has given me? Right? This is not a, a message about if you have this amount of money or this. It's never, it's, never, it's never been about the amount of money. It's about what we do with what we have. And how we seek to glorify God through it. In particular, our relationships. God has brought together this local church family. Spurgeon said, I've heard it, heard it said by those who would be thought philosophers that in religion we must believe, but we cannot know. He says, I'm not very clear about the distinction they draw between knowledge and faith, nor do I really care uh, to inquire about it, because I assert that in matters relating to faith in Christ, we know. In the things of God, we both believe and we know. We know, John says, that we've passed from death to life. And a love for God's people is the basic sign of that. And if it's present, it gives us assurance Now, in a church of this size, which we would call ourselves probably kind of like a small to medium-sized church, it's very easy, once you get over about 35, 40 people, it's very easy to uh, birds of a feather flock together, you know? And that's not wrong in and of itself. 
But there needs to be an intentionality in how we're building relationships. It doesn't mean you have to forsake all of your friends, but it does mean we need to live in such a way that says, you know what? I'm always trying to be intentional to meet someone new, to encourage someone new, to, to listen for a need and not just think, oh, I'm sure somebody else will meet that need. No, maybe the Lord has called me to meet that need. Maybe the Lord has called you to meet that need. And so, so we seek the Lord in prayer for that. And if love for others is present. Love according to the Bible, right? 1 Corinthians 13, we call it the love chapter. It tells us a lot about what that love looks like. Well, it means knowing a couple things. Number one, you're dead. And number two, you've passed from death to life. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It speaks to our pursuit of fellowship. If we love the brothers, we want to be with them. If we love the brothers, we want to be with them. Listen, when COVID happened, we changed some things because we wanted to serve those who, in our church family who, who, uh, who may be homebound or in the winter months, it's harder to get out and the roads are not as safe. And I understand some of those things. Uh, church on the couch was never intended and is never intended to be a replacement of meeting with God's people together. And so when you need to worship from home, worship from home. And it's a wonderful use of the technology we have. And yes, right now I'm looking right at the camera and I'm speaking to those of you who may be watching from your couch right now. If you need to be home and you're sick from home, it is a wonderful use of the technology we have. But come back and fellowship with God's people because it's one of the ways that God communicates our assurance of salvation. When we love the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and we want to be together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a mark of assurance. If our lives are so prioritized that Sunday is the only day that we have to get things done, we need to make changes. Our schedule is too busy. Something is misprioritized. Because Sunday was never intended to be the day that's just optional. Right? Now, we're not legalistic about it. Right? If somebody misses worship on a Sunday, or you go on vacation, or you're sick, or we have those occasional things. That ha- I'm not referring to that. I'm talking about a, a consistent, persistent use of one's time that says, I'm prioritizing the decisions of my own life or something in my own schedule over regularly, consistently meeting with the brothers and sisters of Christ. That's the message we see clearly in the Scripture. Spurgeon continues from the quote above, do you love them, the people of God, for Christ's sake? Do you say to yourself, that's one of Christ's people. That is one who bears Christ's cross. That is one of the children of God. Therefore, because of that, I love them. And I take delight in his or her company, even if, even if you you rub each other the wrong way with your personalities a little bit. That's all the more reason to spend time with someone that rubs you the wrong way. Oh, oh, you thought I was talking about rubbing them the wrong way. You probably rub them the wrong way too. I know I do. Right? That's how these river stones get so smooth. They get tossed by the current and flipped and they rub against each other and they develop smooth edges. Why? Well, because they've been rubbing against each other. Well, when the Lord's love is present in the body of Christ, we spend time with those that, that are not necessarily our next door neighbor, that are not necessarily the one that we would always intentionally choose to spend time with, but we spend time together because we know that God is working in our sanctification, helping us to be more and more set apart to be like Christ. 
There was a woman who was surprised at church one day when uh, a woman came up after her and uh, uh, before the church service started, and, and she went out of her way. It was a, a, a lady. They knew each other. They were acquaintances, but she came up, and she gave her a big hug, and she encouraged her, and she was like, oh, I wonder what happened. Why well, she kind of had a change of heart. Huh. Well, she got her answer when at the end of the service, the pastor said, your assignment for next week is the same as last week. I want you to go out there and I want you to love somebody that you just can't stand. <laughs> it's easy to go give somebody a hug. Not for everybody I recognize, right? Like I'm a hugger, so I just, you know, shake your hands, give you a hug, that kind of thing, right? Some of you are not huggers. That's fine. It's not really about hugging. It's easy to smile and say, hey, good morning. It's great to see you. Is it? Or did you just lie? In church. (laughs) I have to have some fun with this too. It's difficult when it requires continual effort. Persistent commitment, engagement with intentionality. It's different when it requires financial sacrifice. It's different when it requires relational sacrifice. It's different when it requires reordering our schedule. It's different. It's not as easy. So we need to examine our hearts to see if we're loving the church family. But nice isn't the goal. Love is the goal. Love is the goal. How do you know that someone is about ready to slam somebody else? oh, I just got to tell you this thing, bless her heart. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, watch out for what's coming. It's not usually eight out of 10 times, it's not a compliment that's coming after that. Right? I've spent some years in the South. I heard bless her heart a whole lot, bless his heart a whole lot. It's usually followed by something not good. There's no blessing intended in it. There's no blessing that comes out of your mouth. Oh, bless his heart. No blessing there. We're supposed to serve one another, John says, following the example of Jesus, right? Don't, don't follow the example of Cain. Follow the example of Jesus. 1 John 3.16, by this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So you want to know, well, how do I know if I'm really loving someone? In what ways are you laying down your life for a brother or sister in Christ? Now listen, your cross is not Jesus's cross, or maybe better said, Jesus's cross is not your cross. And the way that God is calling you to lay down your life for another is not the same as for another individual. That's where walking according to the Spirit and putting off the desires of the flesh, we are able to discern the ways in which God is calling us to sacrificially love other people. Because it's not the same for everyone. People have different resources. People have different abilities. People have different schedules. People have different uh, personality relational traits. And so there are different ways where God is calling us or how God is calling us to love other people. But we do see it in the way that Jesus has laid down his life for us. And this is a knowledge that brings confidence. We need to hear this today. God's love for us is not merely felt as an inward feeling. Our our feelings are like dashboard lights. 
It's a response to something that we believe. Right? You, you, you go, and I'm, I was a little bit of inside here, but you go, and you've got a dashboard light on your, that's on on your car, and you take it to the repairman, unless you bought one of those little things that tells you the code, and you plug it in. Well, we need to plug ourselves in to the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit so we can begin to assess and understand what's wrong in our own heart. Why don't I want to get together with that person? Why don't I want to serve that person? Why do I persistently refuse to change my pattern of living so that I can sacrificially love others in the church? Well, that, friends, that can be a dangerous question to ask. Now, maybe you are doing that and you're making strides in that direction. Praise the Lord for that. Wonderful. Every one of us in this room is challenged through a message like this because every one of us needs to apply this in one way or another. But it's different for each of us, so we need to guard against the temptation to think, well, everybody should be doing what I'm doing. Well, that's not true either. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if we're to love just as Christ loved the church, well, while people are still sinners, while people are still acting in evil, while people are still not treating people, someone the right way, while these things are happening, we love. We initiate We go after people in love because we care about them, because we love them. We're willing to see a relationship maybe even um, challenged or go over some bumps in the road because we care more about how someone is growing in their relationship with Christ and being in fellowship with the body of Christ. Or or that's the phrase I keep using because I'm thinking about fellowshipping together. But uh, insert any number of ways that people may or may not be living according to the ways that God has called us to live. So we pursue people out of love because we care about them and their relationship before the Lord more than we care about how much they like me. Because otherwise this can just really easily turn into self-worship. I want people to like me, so I'm not going to challenge people. What we're saying is, I want people to like me so much so that I will let them experience the consequences of their own sin, those natural consequences or discipline consequences, rather than initiate a relationship and try to push into a difficult, uncomfortable, awkward conversation. Or because I'm not sure I know how to have this conversation, I'm not going to have it at all. Rather than say, you know, there's an important conversation that needs to be had. Let me learn about how to have it so that I can be faithful in growing in maturity and trusting the Lord and walk in faith through love. Very similar to 1 John 3.16. is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know... When, when, when God loves his people, he gives us everything that you need. He gives you everything that you need to love your brother or sister in Christ. Romans 8.32, as the Father sends the Son, he, the Father, who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? You need strength? As you rest in the Lord and seek input from the body of Christ, you'll get strength. You need wisdom? Same. Courage? Same. Help? Same. God graciously gives everything that we need to follow him in obedience. I want to suggest four ways in closing that we can live in love through obedience. Number one, open your heart to the material needs of the saints. This is in context, that's exactly what what John's application is here. If, If anyone has the world's goods 
and sees his brother in needs and in, in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's rhetorical. It doesn't. It can't. But when we see someone in need and we're willing to do something about it through what we're able... Now, here's a challenge. Not everyone can help everyone or do everything. That's why we're a body. And so sometimes we have to put our heads together and say, how can we help this person who's struggling in these ways? In this context, it's also not a call to meet the need of every poor person in our county. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't other passages that address that topic, but in this context, he's talking about meeting the needs of believers. Nobody in the community of faith should lack anything. Now, we have to remember what needs are. And so we have to, right, there's a whole conversation that needs to happen there in our minds and our hearts, but not everyone is going to have the same home. Not everyone is going to, right? You see what I'm getting at there? The point is we put our heads together and we say, how do we love them? How do we help provide for their needs? If someone is willing to work, they won't lack because of their ability to work and earn and the willingness of the body of Christ to come alongside of people. Number two, open your heart to the teaching and instruction, instructional needs of the saints. That is what's happening here. You don't see him state it here. You see him do it here. John is doing this. He is, he is teaching the saints that they need to resist people who are teaching false doctrine and lean into the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's teaching them through the book of 1 John. And we see that in most of the, the letters to the body of Christ. We see that over and over and over again. He's modeling it for us here, teaching them intently according to their need. Brothers and sisters, it is not only the pastors and elders' jobs to teach people according to their need. It's the body of Christ to grow up. Now, some are especially gifted in teaching. Some are able to teach, but maybe not as especially gifted in presentation. We're all called to be a part of it in one way or another. Sometimes it takes place in this context. Sometimes it takes place in, in the context of a, of a Bible study that meets here at the church throughout the week. Sometimes it takes place in the context of a community group that meets throughout the week. Sometimes it takes place in the context of a men's group or a ladies group or one-on-one -on -one opening the Bible and reading the Bible together, trying to help people see where the Word of God applies to their particular specific need. It does. Every need that a person has is addressed at least categorically in the Word of God. In the word of God. Three, we need to open our hearts to the hospitality needs of the saints. Do you know how many people in this church just need a friend? More than you know. Not because you're not nice. Do you know statistically... Church visitors to a church find that it is easy to be welcomed kindly at a church, right? It's easy for a church to ident be identified as friendly. But while a church can be identified as friendly, it can still be quite difficult to make friends. I always brag on how friendly Oak Grove Church is. I do. We've experienced it when we moved here. I see people experience it. I hear testimonies. Do you know how this happens? Because you, you, you go up and you say hi and you welcome people, you introduce to people. Some of you are especially intentional to invite people to your homes. I just want to say more of us need to be. 
especially intentional to invite people to our homes. Because it's when we meet with people in the homes that we get to know them, we get to hear their heart, and we get to open up the word with them. And maybe that's a sub-point there. When you meet together in homes, it doesn't have to be a formal Bible study, but if someone is sharing a need, open up your word and see what the Lord has to say about a particular need. Right? We open the word, we teach one another as we do that. Lastly, I'll say open your heart to the personal ministry of the word. Some call it counseling, some call it uh, soul care. But we're called to do that too. That's not just something that we're to outsource. We are called to come alongside people and help them by walking through the perplexing journey of figuring out what I'm struggling with, how my heart is confusing me in this issue, what does the word God say about it, and how can you help me learn how to consistently put this into practice? How can I learn to grow in this area? It requires friendship. Sacrifice. Persistence. It's easier to talk about love than it is to love. As a church, we always need to be growing in all of those areas that I mentioned, and more. That's just a few. I opened uh, my message talking about one aspect of gravity that I wasn't aware of, and the reality that there is so much about this world and about people that uh, I just am not aware of, and about the Lord that I just do not know. And I also asked you why we want to focus on the things that we don't know that seem perplexing to us rather than, rather than the things that we can know for sure. Again, I'm not saying don't try to learn anything new, but I'm saying there is so much that God has said, focus here, learn this, and you will know. God wants you to learn this. God wants us to grow in this so that we know. We need to examine our lives, see if we're sacrificing loving brothers and sisters in Christ and how we're doing so or how we need to grow in it as an expression of God's love for his people.